This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Is it possible for a man or a woman to leave homosexuality behind and find freedom in Jesus Christ? Well, we know the answer to that. We know it's possible. But you would not necessarily know that if all you heard about the subject is from the mainstream media and even some sectors of the church scene. Because to them, homosexuality is always to be celebrated and embraced. And anybody who isn't on board with that is either a homophobe or some kind of a hater. But we don't often hear from the real people who have experienced experienced that lifestyle on the ground and left it behind to follow the call of Jesus. But today we're going to hear one of those stories. George Carneal is with us and the Lord delivered him from homosexuality after 25 years. He has an incredible story to tell and he does so in his book, which is called From Queer to Christ, My Journey into the Light. And it's wonderful to have you here. George, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Janet, for having me on the show. Well, this is interesting. Your testimony is really interesting. You are the son of a Southern Baptist minister, and I'm sure for a lot of people they expected, well, wait a minute, how could you possibly struggle with this if you grew up in a Christian home, your dad was a pastor? How did this all begin for you? You knew you were different as a kid, you said. Correct. I just remember in first grade having us, I was attracted to a, a little girl in my class, but I was also attracted to a boy. And I knew at that point something was a little different. And as I went through uh, elementary school, I just found myself becoming more and more attracted to boys. And uh, growing up in the 70s and not hearing about homosexuality, I had no idea where these feelings were coming from. So I was really in my head trying to understand why I'm having this attraction towards boys. And while the boys were calling me sissy and faggot, queer, queer bait and homo, I didn't even know what those words meant. But right. when they, when I figured out what those words meant, I couldn't understand how are they able to figure out something about me that I had yet to come to terms with myself. So I really had no idea where it came from, and that really was confusing. Well, yeah, when you talk about being in first grade and you would be attracted to a girl but also a boy, I mean, at six, you're still a little kid. You haven't gone through puberty. How do you see that attraction looking back now? Because clearly you're not a fully, you know, through puberty human being with sexual feelings necessarily. How, how do you see it looking back on it as an adult? I don't think... Th- that any of us have control over who it is that we're attracted to. We all have a certain type or um, I, I, I just honestly could not figure out why there was such a strange feeling towards this boy that was stronger than the girl. I thought the girl was cute, but it wasn't the same kind of feelings or the attraction that I had towards a boy. So that's what really confused me because I had not had been molested. I hadn't seen pornography. I hadn't I didn't even know what homosexuality was. Yeah. I just did not understand where where did this come from? Right. Very confusing. Yeah, it would be very confusing for a little kid. And I would imagine this was not something that you readily shared with other people, this confusion that you were having. Mm-hmm. Correct. Uh, again, um, back in the 70s when people weren't even talking about this, at least I hadn't heard of it, 
Um, I didn't even think know that you could go to a library and look for top uh, books on the subject. Not that I would have. I would have been afraid of somebody seeing me looking at such material. And I certainly couldn't go and talk to my parents because I didn't know what my dad's response would be, considering that he's a pastor. And I also had some inclination of how people would react just in terms of my peers and being around certain Christians and how they would talk about homosexuals in such a degrading and derogatory way. So I learned very quickly to keep my mouth shut and not trust anyone, and I just stayed in my head all of the time. And I think that's what really started uh, the early onslaught of depression, because uh, I, I, was, I had no outlet to kind of figure this out. Yeah, that must have been really tough. What was your relationship like with your mom and your dad? It was great. My dad, uh, I think it was a little more distant only because he had the demands of the ministry, so he was gone a lot. And there are a lot of demands on the pastor in terms of dealing with the flock of the church. And so I was with my mom more, and I have a great relationship with her. And my dad and I, we were fine, but it just seemed a little bit more distant. But I think what didn't help the matter was the fact that I, you know, I didn't understand why my sister and my brothers were heterosexual, were all raised in the same home. But why is it that I was struggling with this? And I, I, I think maybe maybe I needed something more from my father, or maybe it was because of the uh, disconnect with my male peers and being rejected from them. Somewhere along the way, there was this burning need or desire to connect with males, but right. it wasn't happening. Right, right. That's tough. So you were going to church all this time. Obviously, your dad is a pastor. What were your thoughts about God when you were going through all of this? Um. It was fine until I started hear the, hearing the stories about Sodom and Gomorrah. And I mind you, as a kid, I couldn't process it any other way other than, wow, God is very angry, he's vengeful, he hates homosexuals so much that he destroyed these two cities. And I remember when my father, and I discussed it in the book, but when my father was discussing uh, Sodom and Gomorrah one night, I just, I, I was seething and I just remembered I hated God and I hated my father for talking about it. And any time a pastor would even talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, there just seemed to be a lot of venom there. And it wouldn't be until I later came out of the life that I understood that God never had an axe to grind with homosexuals. He, he loves all of us. He lo- he's, his issue is with the sin of heterosexuals and homosexuals. So God had to really start to work on my mind to help me to see that he doesn't have it out for me. He loves me. He just wants me to live a life that's pleasing to him. And that was unfortunately something I had to learn much later in life. And I still just went through a lot of problems as a result of not having anyone to talk to about this. Oh, I'm so sorry. So when would you say you fully entered the homosexual lifestyle? You were in the scene for quite a few years, and your life really spiraled downward. Talk a little bit, if you would, about that process, how it all happened. Well, I think what happened was, was because of the disconnect with my male peers, when I entered a bar, a gay bar at 18, and when you have a different kind of attention from males, that unbeknownst to me wasn't the right kind of attention I needed, but I couldn't see it at the time, it was such a nice feeling to finally feel like I was in a place of where there were other people like me and where I felt like I belonged, where there were other peers, and I wasn't being mistreated. And that's, I think, what becomes such a stranglehold for so many gays and lesbians, maybe, for the lesbians. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for gays, I know, I think when you go into that life and you are around others like that and you feel like there's a sense of community, uh, it, you, I just... I I just lived and ate and breathed the gay community and gay bars, and that's all I could think about. I really wanted the attention and the affection of guys. There was a disconnect somewhere, and I didn't realize, again, until later, when God had to kind of reveal this stuff to me, there was some brokenness 
within me. But at the time, going into that, that life, um, I was in it for 25 years, and I just didn't see a way out. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, the unfortunate part of it is, is that when you go into it, at least for me, it seems great, it feels good, and this is something new. And I unfortunately uh, slept with a lot of guys, and I had developed a, a sex addiction and, and really battled drugs and alcohol, severe depression. And I did spend a little bit of time as a male prostitute, and I had an unfortunate, frightening experience with that. So I got out of that, but I eventually just attempted suicide because I really didn't see hope anymore. And I certainly didn't see God as the way out because I had, it had been ingrained in my mind by Christians that we are perverts, we're disgusting, God hates us, and AIDS is the punishment for us, yeah. and, and we're all going to burn in hell. I just didn't see any hope. Well, and that's so horrible. I have heard people talk about this quite a bit. A number of people that I've talked to have come out of the homosexual lifestyle and come to Christ have said things like you've said. I felt so torn. I loved being accepted, but then I also fell into depression. I started in with drugs and alcohol. Why do you think the drugs and the alcohol were part of that experience? Well, it's very prevalent, and there is that peer pressure. But for me, what I enjoyed about it was it, it was a, medicating was a way for me to get out of my head. And I think between the drugs and the alcohol and even the sex, it was the one time that I could get peace in my mind, even if it was brief, not understanding in hindsight that all I was doing was just compounding the problems. And I was going to bring an onslaught of other issues that were going to come on, that were going to happen as a result of this. But at the time, it was just to get out of my head because I struggle with so much depression and um I, it was just a, I can't tell you or describe the mental torment. And that's what it was. So that's what the drugs and the alcohol and the sex would do. It would just take my mind off of that. Right. Oh, it's it's got to be such a difficult thing to have gone through. Well, we're going to pick up the story on the other side of this break. From Queer to Christ is the name of the book. George Carneal with us. We'll come back and hear more of George's story right after this. You're listening to Janet Meffer Today. This is Janet Mefford. We're partnering with Bible League International on Fan the Flame, Bibles for Asia. That's the theme of our new campaign. And our shared goal is to send 1,200 Bibles, both to new believers and to those who've been praying many years for their own Bible in countries like China, India, and Nepal. Imagine strengthening the faith of a new believer in China like Washi, a 30-year-old wife and mother of two who overcame illiteracy two years ago and is yearning to read her very own Bible. Or Jirish, an 80-year-old man in India who followed Hinduism for decades, but is now a new Christian determined to follow Jesus Christ. You can join the Janet Mefford listening family in sending a Bible for only $5 or 20 for $100. Call 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Just look for Fan the Flame Bibles for Asia. Thank you for caring. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. 
Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Thank you for joining us. And it's great also to be joined by George Carneal. He is the author of From Queer to Christ, My Journey into the Light. And he's been sharing with us some of the details of his story. The son of a Southern Baptist minister grew up in the church and yet entered the homosexual lifestyle in the gay scene for 25 years before eventually coming out the other side and coming to the Lord. George, we were to the point in your story where you were describing how during the time that you spent in the gay scene, drugs and alcohol were a big part of your life, kind of a way of medicating you to get yourself out of your head, as you said. And you also spent time as a male prostitute. I I read the story in your book about how you ended up finally getting scared at a certain point. How did it come to that, though? How did it come to the point that you were actually taking it that far? Again, when you don't have any hope and you don't care. And also when you're young, I think you think you're invincible, that nothing's going to happen to you. And it's not that 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 incident with a a particular man who picked me up. It was a very frightening incident, but I still continued to do it after that. I just didn't have any value for my own life. Again, I only lived in the moment, but I I would like to say to the parents out there who have LGBT children, this is the power of prayer. When I, one night I was getting ready to attempt suicide, and then eventually in L.A. there was another incident in which I was contemplating suicide. And my father called me out of the blue both times. And the second time I wasn't even con- conversing with him. I had cut him off for about four years. And I want them to know the power of your prayer because my dad calling was really an intervention at that time. And so he had said to me, I think it's time for you to come home. And I was just so tired and beaten down that I did go back and uh, with my family. But uh, I think about a year after that was when I would attempt suicide. I just uh-huh. couldn't. I couldn't deal with the struggle anymore. That's so hard. Now, what sort of relationship, you said that you cut off your father for four years, but what sort of relationship did you have with anybody in your family during the entire time you were fully immersed in the gay scene and having, you know, addiction issues and all the rest? It, it, was, it was well. I mean, my family loves me. They really do. I, I wouldn't say I, I kept them involved in that part of my life. I almost lived two different lives. They just knew me as the son or the brother. Uh, but my life, I kept it separate and, um, I stayed in touch periodically, but I really kept them at arm's length without really knowing it. And they really didn't know the extent of everything that I was involved with and what I had been through until my parents had read the book. Wow. That's so amazing. So how was it that you ended up coming to the Lord? Because you said your dad reached out to save you. He was diligent in prayer for you. How did that occur? Um, Again, I would say to Christians, my father, thankfully, he knew that he couldn't change me. His, he late, recently told me, he said, I knew you were an adult and you were going to make your own decisions, but I would just go to the Lord and tell him that if he's really your child, protect him and keep him close and do whatever it takes short of taking his life. 
but, but draw him back to you and do not allow him to have any peace in that life. And I will tell you, it was the best prayer he could have prayed and what the best prayer any Christian could pray for anyone who has a child or a loved one in that life. It's just pray that God will not give them any peace, because for me, 25 years in that life, about a year and a half before I started to slowly tiptoe back into the church, because the church was a place of anxiety for me, because I really hated Christians. But the misery of that life is what drove me into the arms of God. But Mm -hmm. God had to slowly start putting some Christians in my life who were different than the Christians I had encountered. And they really did have the heart of Christ by being loving and not judging me. They never once affirmed what I was doing, but it was nice to be able to go to church and sit with them and feel like that that, um, they treated me as a human being. And it was you know, because I had gone through a period with the occult, New Age, and even Hinduism, but I just kept coming to all of these dead ends, and nothing was satisfying, and I was just so miserable and sad and depressed all the time. All I thought about was suicide, Mm. and I finally, it was either suicide or just give God a chance. That was really my last resort, and I'm so glad that I did, because God really started to help me to see Him in a different light, And and the way that I had always thought about Him in such a negative light, God really showed me how much he loved and cared about me, and I am so grateful that he was gracious and merciful and long-suffering mm. uh, to let me get to the point of where I could uh, get my head together and get out of that life. Oh, that is so wonderful. He Isn't he wonderful? He really is wonderful. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so true. It's interesting to me that you said th- that you hated Christians, that there were a lot of Christians who had handled things in the wrong way in your life, but then you came into contact with Christians who handled it right, who were loving. They didn't affirm you in your homosexuality, but they also just continued to lovingly, I would imagine, pray for you. What helped? I mean, because I think this would help a lot of listeners who say, I have a son who's gay or I have an acquaintance who's gay and I really want to uh, share the gospel with them, but they don't seem to be open to the gospel. They think God is hateful. What would you say about your experience that would help those Christians to do the same thing that those loving Christians did for you? Well, Janet, I'll tell you the most heartbreaking thing is the number of mothers who have contacted me either through my website or just if I meet them who have gay sons. They are devastated, and, and some tell me some really horrific things about one in particular who is transitioning to become transgender. And when I ask them, do you have a Christian support group and people who can pray with you, they will hands down tell me, no, I don't trust Christians. That's the problem right there. What is it about Christians in the Church who have made it to where even their own kind don't even trust opening up to them to try to get help and to, ha- and to have support and to pray for their children? And um, I'm sorry, Janet, I forgot the rest of your question. Yeah, just um, just along those same lines that you were discussing there, that a lot of Christians struggle with this because they might have a family member or somebody they love who is gay. Oh, and what okay. can they do in that situation? And what did you gain in terms of wisdom from your own experience? Well, I'll tell you, um, just like with my gay friends who are still in their life. Now, I've lost a lot of them and they don't talk to me anymore. But those who do hang in there, I would tell Christians, it is not your job to change me, and, my, and the goal should not be heterosexuality, because some people will transition into a heterosexual life. Some don't, and that's fine, because Jesus was celibate, and, uh, and he was single, and that doesn't mean I'm deficient as a person. I have chosen celibacy because I don't have the same desire for a woman as a man, but I've decided to put my own selfish desires of, of trying to sexually connect with men to try to live a life that is pleasing to God. And I would say to Christians, just be a friend. 
Because even with my gay friends, I may be the only godly person or influence, godly influence in their life. I'm not perfect, but th- most of them hate Christians. They've been mistreated and abused by their own family members. And so they know where I stand, and I always try to share with them the gospel of Christ, but I don't beat the dead horse. And what I still do when I call them, I just check in. Hey, how's your mom? How's your family? How's your health? How's your job? I really am just a friend to them. And if at some point they ever uh, trust me enough and they want to talk further about coming to know Christ, great. But you you can't put the cart before the horse of them changing, because in my own life, I had to get myself right with God. I had to get... I had to repent and turn from that life and come to know Christ. And then that's when the Holy Spirit started to really open my eyes and start to change me on the inside. And it takes time. And the other most difficult part of this journey is, is that once a same-sex attracted individual walks out of that life, understand that the gays hate them because they're Christian, and the Christians don't want to do anything with you because you're gay. But yet you don't get a support system anywhere, Mm. and the churches don't want to have classes for you. They'll do it for the divorced individuals, but where are the classes to help those of us who are struggling with the same-sex attraction? So it makes the journey even more lonely, and it also adds to the depression, and it's very hard not to easily go back into that life because you don't have a support system. But thankfully for me, in my case, 25 years of that misery, I knew I wasn't going back to it. And I had no choice but to just stay the course. And I'm glad I did. Well, right. Well, what about those who really would discount a story like yours and say it isn't possible? They And I've heard gay activists say that. If you mm-hmm. now are saying I'm set free from my sin and I belong to the Lord Jesus, I'm a new person in Christ, they would say, well, you were never gay. What would you say to those activists who just discount that they say gender is fluid and gender identity or sexual orientation is fluid unless you have a story like yours, George? What do you say to those people who would say your story can't be true? Uh, I've Believe me, I have always been gay, and I will tell them. I've had women who knew I was gay offered to have sex with me with no strings attached because it was their goal to either try and change me or they wanted to be the first one, and I turned them down. So that should say to a lot of people right there, it really was never about the sex. It's just I'm really attracted to guys. So if they want to discount my story, that's fine. But when, I, when you give your life to Christ and God starts to work on the inside of you, the only thing I can tell you is this. The grip that homosexuality used to have on me and this desire and this need and this drive to be with a guy has been taken away. I can look at a guy and think, oh, wow, he's attractive. But it's no different than a heterosexual man or a woman who looks at someone of the opposite sex and thinks they're beautiful. It doesn't mean they're going to go and sleep with them. So you can't discount my story. All I can tell you is this. I I spent 25 years in that life, and I was so miserable, and I had tried everything but God. And when I finally walked away and gave my life to Christ and read God's Word and surrendered to the principles in His uh, own—tried to follow the principles in His Word, I can tell you this. I finally, for the first time, not only have peace in my heart, but I have peace of mind, and I know I am at peace with God. And it is a peace I cannot describe. And that's why I don't have any desire to go back into that life, because I know it's a dead end. And I would encourage them, if they don't believe me, that's fine. All I would say is, is that if they really get honest with themselves, and I say this in love, because the media and the world, they don't care about them. But a Christian, to tell them in love, 
that this is wrong and this is not God's will. That is the most loving, loving thing I could do for you, and I would encourage Christians to still say that to these individuals, because I want them to know that if they ever truly surrender their life to Christ and, and let, them, let the power of the Holy Spirit start working in their life, not only are they going to see a change, they're going to know a, a peace that is indescribable and it indescribable and it is well worth the journey. Well, that I, is ask him to give Christ a chance. How oh, that is chance. very well said. And people can read more about your story in your book. It is called From Queer to Christ: My Journey into the Light. George Carneal spending time with us. George, it means a lot that you would tell your story here. Thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate you having me on the show. Thank God you. God bless you. Thank you again. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back to Janet Mefford today. It is the age of fake news, alternative facts, and post-truth. What a time to be alive. And how do you proclaim Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life in a culture such as ours, where confusion reigns and is actually celebrated at times? First, you have to understand the foundations of truth from a Christian perspective. And we're going to find out more about that today with Abdu Murray, who is North America Director of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries and Scholar-in-Residence at the Josh McDowell Institute of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. And he is the author of Saving Truth, Finding Meaning and Clarity in a Post-Truth World. And Abdu, great to have you with us. How are you? I'm so well. Thank you so much for having me, Janet. Well, it's great to have you. You speak in your book not just of this post-truth world, but how that has kind of morphed into a culture of confusion. How have you seen that culture of confusion come about? If you trace it back even just a few years, how have we gotten to the place where we are now? Well, I think it starts from, it stems from our desire for autonomy. I think that we have confused things over the course of the years now, uh, where we have this word, freedom. We use this word freedom a lot, and it's a beautiful word. It's a wonderful word. It describes the American experiment, the idea of freedom. But we've confused it with this idea of autonomy. We think freedom is the ability to do whatever we want, whenever we want, in whatever way we want. Well, that's not actually freedom. That's actually autonomy. And autonomy comes from two Greek words, autos, meaning self, and nomos, meaning law. So what's ended up happening is, as we've confused freedom with the ability to do whatever we want, to be laws unto ourselves, we've actually lost the ability to truly be free. So we want to do whatever we want, whenever we want to do it. And if we allow for confusion to sort of, quote-unquote, live in the question, where we never actually come up with answers, we just constantly pursue questions, well, then we can question everything. We can question what it means to be human, what it means to be male, what it means to be female, all these things, because confusion allows us to play at the fuzzy edges, and we never actually have to make a determination as to what's true and what's not. And if we can play at the fuzzy edges, well, then our autonomy, our ability to be laws unto ourselves, well, that's safe. But certainty and clarity necessarily excludes certain things because truth excludes. 
and we're not comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. And so I think over the course of the years, when we've given our preferences, everything, you know, all, all the benefits of the doubt, and we wanted to give everyone their full expression of their preferences, well, they end up sacrificing clarity on the altar of their preferences or on the altar of the human autonomy. And today, now everything is celebrated. Every expression of our preferences is celebrated, and truth is considered subordinate, and it's at the low rung of the ladder. So that's what we've gotten, and I think it's happened uh, over the past few years, but it's really been the seed was sown long, long ago. Yeah, it really was. What I find so interesting is when you look at the culture, we've seen things flipped. In other words, what was wrong at one time and universally accepted as wrong is now right. But when it becomes right, then what was previously right becomes wrong. So, for example, if you stand for man-woman marriage, which is kind of a no-brainer, all of a sudden you're a hater. So what about this flip? Why is it that when you begin to embrace what is wrong or what is false, you then have to demonize what is true and what is right. Well, we've had for quite some time now a culture that, and it's really become a fever pitch lately, hasn't it, where we have um, those who would stand against autonomy, not freedom. And I think, you know, people who want limits on things like sexuality, like marriage, all these things, they're not anti-freedom. They're actually pro-freedom because freedom requires boundaries. Um, My kids can't play in my backyard if there were no boundaries. Otherwise, the ball would bounce into the street and they would be killed. So they have to have boundaries. They would be not free to actually enjoy the backyard if there were no boundaries. Well, what ends up happening is, is that if I come against and I say, look, I understand you have a certain preference or you have a view or you have a certain feeling. But understand that has to come underneath the umbrella of truth. Well, I'm considered a hater because I don't, somehow I don't validate you. We've come to this place in our culture where my opinions are equated with me, where I don't hold opinions. I'm not a person who has opinions. I am a person whose opinions define me. Mm. So if I actually were to disagree with someone else's opinions, I'm actually, in today's culture, coming against them as a person. And that makes me a hater. When the reality was, not too long ago, decades ago, only a couple of decades ago, we could actually say, I can respect every person, even if I don't respect their actual ideas, because the truth of the matter is this, not every idea is worthy of our respect, right. but every person who holds the idea is inherently someone who, who's created, I believe, and as you believe, in God's image, and therefore has an inherent dignity. So even if their ideas don't deserve respect, the person themselves deserves to be respected unless they, you know, sort of squandered that. Yeah. So what would you say is the connection between the elevation of the self and the elevation of hedonism and this rejection of objective truth? Well, if we allow ourselves to to reject an objective truth, well, then we become um, God himself. I think that's what's really uh, happened. In fact, in a post-truth culture, it's a little different. Postmodernism rejected the idea of objective truth altogether. They said, there's no objective truth. What's true for you is true for you. And what's true for me is true for me. But don't try to foist your views on me. Mm-hmm. Post-truth's a little different. A post-truth culture says, there are objective truths, but I don't care mm-hmm. because they're not as important to me as my preferences. If they happen to line up with my preferences and my sort of you know, autonomy, well, then great. But if they don't, well, then I'll ignore them or I'll out and out lie about them. Yeah. So why that's the case is because I think that, and this is, an, this, is, this is a problem as old as humanity, Adam and Eve essentially were post-truth people. Hmm. They lived with the truth. They walked and talked with God in the cool of the day, the Bible says. And he says that you were made to be with me. You have but one thing. You cannot eat at a certain tree. They obey that for the longest time, who knows how long. And then along comes Satan, and he tempts them by misquoting God, 
They misquote God back to him, and all of a sudden we realize something. The truth wasn't what was important to Adam and Eve. It was their preferences, because Satan says that if you, the day you eat of that tree, you won't, be like, you won't die like God says. You will be like God, and suddenly their preferences to be God himself overtook the truth that they were meant to be with God, not to be God. And that was the post-truth seed in that garden. But now it's become a full-blown tree. And I think it's because of our natural uh, human, human sort of uh, nature to want to elevate ourselves to God-like status. So we don't want objective truths to be over us. We want to determine what is true. Protagoras said it centuries ago when he said man is the measure of all things. And then atheists and, and humanists like Tom Flynn say that we can come to rough agreement concerning values through our own genius and ingenuity. Well, the problem is history is a, is a, is a, is a strong record that we are terrible at valuing human beings uh, when we give uh, everybody their preferences, someone's going to lose. And the one who loses isn't the one who's got truth on their side. It's the one who, has the, who doesn't have the power. Yeah, that's so true. I have not even seen anybody extrapolate out the ramifications of this worldview with any understanding on that side where they are embracing the post-truth world. In other words, what I'm saying is you don't have people saying what happens in a culture when you begin to have everybody identifying as you must accept my opinion and my preferences the way I've self-defined or else, how do you have any e pluribus unum in the United States Mm. when you have uh, millions of people saying, love me, love my identity, love my preferences, even if it's not in uh, in line with reality? I mean, how do you even have a a functioning society if everybody's thinking that way? Well, we're starting to see uh, the the result of this, aren't we, where we have either too much pluribus and no unum, yeah. or no unum and too much pluribus. Uh, <laughs> we're losing one or the other, uh, and it's because I think when, you're a lo- when we're all laws unto ourselves, I mean, think of the chaos that's ensuing. It's actually happening right, before, right in front of our eyes. When I'm a law unto myself, and my preferences and my law unto myself conflicts with another person's law unto themselves, and truth is now on the bottom rung where preferences matter more. The person who decides among us, it'll look fine and dandy. All of our preferences are given full vent and full expression in society until they conflict. And when they conflict, then the person who wins won't be the one with truth on their side. It'll be the person who has power on their side. Mm-hmm. And that's what's going to happen is that our free society, freedom will die under its own, its own sort of exercise. We'll exercise freedom like crazy, and then we'll become enslaved to our sense of freedom, see the chaos around us. I mean, when it comes to marriage, for example, uh, someone else's viewpoints might be one thing, but then my religious convictions might conflict with that. Right. Well, my fundamental right to freedom of expression will be subordinated to their preferences because they have the power or someone might have the power. Well, after a point of time, it's going to be what essentially becomes an uncivil public square. Yeah. And we're going to cry out for someone to lift us out of the muck. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're going to run to a very quick break. Coming back with Abdul Murray. His book is called Saving Truth. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Stay with us. We'll be back.
The Ministry of Preborn is dedicated to helping save preborn babies from abortion through ultrasound. And even in this time of national crisis, preborn is there. Here's Dan Steiner, president of preborn. No college classes and sheltering in have led to an explosion of unplanned pregnancies. Women are panicked about their pregnancies and wanting to abort. Our crisis line is the busiest it's ever been. Here's Catherine, one of our crisis line operators. Girls are scared and often seeking abortion as an easy way out. Girls are often desperate being pregnant in this pandemic. With your help, we are able to be here for them. The Ministry of Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Would you join Preborn in the cause for life? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Call 855-402-BABY. Thank you. This is Janet Mefford, and we're partnering with Bible League International on Fan the Flame Bibles for Asia. Our shared goal is to send 1,200 Bibles from the Janet Mefford listening family to our brothers and sisters in Christ in Asia. In this region of the world, Bibles are scarce for many reasons, including the remoteness of where people live. In the Philippines, church planters and evangelists trained by using resources from Bible League International travel many hours by car, boat, and by foot to lead Bible studies in remote places of the country. Let's send them the Bibles they need in order to share Christ and to see lives transformed for His glory. You can join other Janet Mefford listeners by sending a Bible for $5 or $15 for $75. Just call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Just look for Fan the Flame, Bibles for Asia. And God bless you for caring. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We're back on Janet Mefford today. How do we find meaning and clarity in a post-truth world? We're talking about it with Abdu Murray, who is the North America Director of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries and also host of the radio program and podcast Embrace the Truth with Abdu Murray. His book is called Saving Truth. Abdu, one of the things that you were saying, which I think is so important for every Christian to understand, is what happens if you're a law unto yourself and you come in conflict with somebody else who's a law unto himself then it doesn't become who has the truth wins. It becomes whoever has more power wins, and then freedom dies. And when you were saying that, I was thinking about this really important struggle that was waged by our forebears hundreds of years ago over the divine right of kings, where you had the king was the law unto himself and what the king said went. And then eventually when you had America come online, you know, we understood that we the people have uh, an understanding the law ought to be king. The king isn't the law. Are we in some ways reversing history? Uh, We don't have a king, obviously, but if it becomes whoever has the most power wins, you really do lose everything that this country has been standing for all of these years. I think that's true. I think you're absolutely right. And in fact, I would say it's even a little more dangerous because when you had the divine right of kings, you had one king who was a law unto himself. Now we have 330 million kings who are all laws unto themselves. And then when the chaos ensues, there's going to be the superman or the superwoman who's going to say, I have the way out of this mess and will gladly hand over our power or whatever we might do to such a person because they're going to deliver us. And that person might have good intentions and go badly or have bad intentions and go badly. But what it might end up leading, leading to is an autocracy or authoritarianism mm. because we've been so sick 
of the, um, the negative consequences and the chaos that's ensued from all of us having this sort of, quote-unquote, divine right of kings. So I think that you're right. I think it might manifest itself in a little bit of a different way than the, in the days of old, but I think we're headed on the same way where if we give those freedoms up, we use our freedoms to end up having to give our freedoms up, and then everything that this country stood for will be gone. And this country stood for two things. Not only freedom won, but as Os Guinness puts it so beautifully in all of his books, freedom that is ordered and maintained. And the way to maintain freedom is not to impose restraints from the state, it's to impose self-restraint. As Oz has put it, the only restraint that does not murder freedom is self-restraint. Yes. And the problem is we're not exhibiting any of that. Yes. Oh, right on the money with that. Now, now you also talk about the church and how the church has been affected by the post-truth world and all of this insanity around us. What are your mm. thoughts on the degree to which Christians have been affected by this and how it is really impeding what we are trying to proclaim, which is Jesus Christ? Mm. And I think that's a, a fundamentally important question. That uh, In Chapter 2 of the book, I go into this extensively. And one of the things that I notice, an example, when the Obergefell decision happened, where the United States Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage, I got a bunch of tweets and other things that I saw online of people posting these articles about how an uh, LGBT activist had sued two publishers who published the Bible to try to get the Bible banned in federal court. Oh, yes. Well, I did a little bit of uh, research. Three minutes. Took me three minutes. <laughs> Found out none of it was true. No. Um, that, yes, a guy did, in fact, sue two publishers in federal court. Happened to be in Michigan, where I live. and uh, But he wasn't seeking to ban the Bible. He was seeking emotional damages because he, he claimed they mistranslated the Bible. Well, the judge saw through it, and in 21 days after filing it, he, he, he dismissed it as frivolous. Well, Christians, the problem was it was Christians, or those at least who labeled themselves as Christians, who were propagating the story. Mm. One of the reasons why is because the post-truth culture has created a, an atmosphere where we have an agenda, and if the truth gets shredded a little bit on the way to preserving our agenda, as valid or as noble as we think it might be, well, so be it. We'll mm -hmm. shred the truth a little bit, because we have a higher calling and a higher purpose. Well, that's what the culture does. That's not what the church should be doing. Right. And if it's those who follow the way, the truth, and the life, then everything we say has to be saturated in the idea of truth. So I think Christians oftentimes hit like or share on their Facebook or their Twitter or, or whatever other social media platforms they do, on articles, without actually reading the thing or investigating, is this true? Yes. Is it something that's worthy of sharing? And that's just one example of a way that we are, you know, the phrase is, be in and not of the culture. But unfortunately, in the post-truth era, no one's immune, and the church ended up being in and of the culture. Yeah. We, have, we have a higher standard we're called to. Oh, I agree with you 100%. We cannot be reactionary. We have to take the time to figure out if what we're saying is absolutely true. And you're right. I mean, that happens almost, I'm sure that happens to you, too, when you're looking on the Internet. You see all kinds of crazy posts, and then another website picks it up. And by the time mm -hmm. it gets to the 15th website, it doesn't even resemble reality <laughs> after right. a while. And we, yeah, you're right. We have to be very careful in propagating that. But as far as Christians dealing with proclaiming Christ in a culture like this. Sometimes it's difficult because when you encounter somebody who is a law unto himself, it's difficult to even begin a conversation and it gets very frustrating, especially if you're trying to do it on Twitter. How do you advise Christians to take on those conversations and to proclaim the truth? Where should you even begin to lay that foundation for somebody who's already so far gone and has rejected even truth as an objective reality? 
Mm, yeah, well, I think oftentimes it's just a matter of uh, artfully asked questions during the course of a conversation. And how I, I usually point those towards is there's two ways I do it. The first thing is to point out the consequences of a post-truth culture of confusion. I think there are three main consequences, and questions are oftentimes the best way to get there. The first consequence is that when we sacrifice clarity on the altar of autonomy, we lose our ability to reason. And I think some, a lot of people will sort of a reject objective truth, but then when you show them how absurd life is without objective truth, like the very claim, as you well know, um, and I, I've heard you defend many times, objective truth is a reality. When you try to deny it, you're actually affirming it. <laughs> Whenever you say there's no objective truth, you're making that objectively true statement. Yep. So you can reason with certain people and show them the consequences that reason is out the window. The second thing is that we lose all sense of moral accountability, and we can't have that. And we can show through history all kinds of ways in which people who have rejected accountability above human beings have lost that ability and have actually denigrated other people. And then the third thing I think we lose is a sense of human value. Um, and I think our, uh, we're, we're seeing people who are becoming the poster children for certain agendas, despite their honest struggles, they're being used as ways to, fo- to, to foist an agenda. So I think that the first thing you do is point out the consequences. But the second thing you, you, we can do is actually offer the hope that I think is found in Christ. And I think when you look at John 8, 31 through 36, where Jesus talks about knowing the truth and the truth will set us free. I think we show that autonomy and freedom aren't the same thing. And then we show that true freedom doesn't mean doing what you can whenever you want. It's doing what you should in accordance with the purpose with which we were created. I think that is an appeal. So we see the consequences of a post-truth culture. And then we show the hope that comes from a from a, from a truth culture that finds its truth and its freedom in Christ. I think that's the way to do it. Is it easy to say? Oh, yeah. Is it hard to do? Oh, yeah. But is it worth doing? Of course. Right. Well, going back to something you talked about earlier, you say in the book that truth is freedom's foundation rather than freedom being the foundation for truth. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that's an important emphasis to, to tell people you've got to have truth if you're going to have freedom? Well, I think the important part here is that if you, don't have tr- if you don't have truth as the foundation of your freedom, well, then you can be free or you can sort of be free of restraints to do anything, even those things which are harmful to others, and you'll never actually see it because all things require a boundary. Yeah. Um, it was Chesterton, I believe, who said it. Even art has boundaries. The essence of every picture, he says, is the frame. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't draw a giraffe with a short neck. You may think you're free to do that but you found you're not really free to draw a giraffe at all. In other words, when facts enter into the picture, and they always do, freedom is necessarily restricted. If you don't have truth as the foundation of your freedom, then you don't really understand what freedom actually is. Um, Because my freedoms will bump up against yours, and that's what's going to happen. But if truth isn't the one that decides between us, then, um, like I said, it's going to be power. And you'll never understand your true purpose. I mean, if we're constantly concocting these, these freedoms. And think about it, we're doing it all the time, the freedom to be whatever gender you want, yeah. the freedom to be whatever species you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes people are talking about this new movement of transhumanism. Well, we're inventing new freedoms all the time, and the problem with that is, is that it's going to lead to very serious, harmful effects throughout society and us in particular. But if we understand that truth, which necessarily has boundaries that exclude the opposite, then we understand freedom for what it was. Not what we can do, but what our purpose actually is. Every action we do is freely chosen in accordance with our purpose. And it's no longer chaos. It's ordered 
and it, beco- it becomes beautiful in that sense. Oh, I think that's so well said. And it's really, really practical, too, because when you are out mm-hmm. talking to a non-Christian who is rejecting objective truth and rejecting uh, all of this reality around us, if you can begin mm-hmm. to do what you've pointed out, pointing out the consequences and offering the hope of Jesus Christ, this is definitely the way to go. It's the way to begin for sure. Well, Abdu Murray's book is called Saving Truth, Finding Meaning and Clarity in a Post-Truth World. And it was so good to have you here, Abdu. Thank you so much for being here. It was an honor and a pleasure. Thank you, Janet. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you for joining us here on Janet Meffer Today. We'll see you next time. God bless. This hour of Janet Meffer Today was brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD. Thank you so much.